Hey, Vince McMahon, it's time for this week's Stick to Wrestling podcast. Oh, no, give me a break. Oh, brother. You're addicted to the Stick to Wrestling podcast. I want to thank Robert Palmer for writing that song on his favorite podcast, Stick to Wrestling, where if you give us 60 minutes, perhaps indeed, we'll give you a raw bone podcast. This is Stick to Wrestling. I am John McAdam. Real quick, we have a Facebook group. If you want to join in, talk wrestling, talk whatever, it's Stick to Wrestling. Just search Facebook and you'll bring that up. If you want to follow me on Twitter, Put in the name John McAdam and follow the guy who has the Stick to Wrestling logo as his avatar. Also, if you would like to donate to Stick to Wrestling, we are ad-free and sponsor-free, and this is our only source of revenue. Uh, You can donate via PayPal at prowrestlingarchives at gmail.com. I want to bring on our new guest. He is new to Stick to Wrestling, but he's not new to podcasting, Mr. Lance Peterson. Lance, thank you for coming on. Oh, it's a pleasure. Pleasure to come in and talk wrestling. I love the name of the show. It's just uh, that's exactly what I'm all about. The, the name of the show actually comes from like you know me mocking people if that like I I'm talking about something they don't like politically. And it's like ah stick to wrestling. So that's what I used <laughs> uh, starting about four years ago. Speaking now, you before I forget, tell us about your podcast. Sure, I'm a uh, part of the Booking the Territory uh, group. There uh, you can find them on Facebook, Booking the Territory, and their Facebook page. I mean, we. Uh, they do several shows, but I'm a, a patron X show that I do. It's called the World Class Cast that I've done for the last four years covering a world class. I really cover it with a fine-tooth comb. It's uh, my home territory. Now, I watched, like everybody else, I watched everything I could get my hands on in the 80s and 90s. But I really stick to world class now. I kind of feel like a, the historian, you know, but I'm always open for people to correct me on things. But I feel like, uh, you know, I don't harp on the uh, the the, the deaths in world class, I don't dwell on that. I kind of celebrate the careers like someone might celebrate the uh, the statistics for the Yankees or something like that. So I, I have a good time. I've uh, done that with the Booking the Territory. I, of course, I've been on Twitter since about 2011, putting up a lot of memorabilia, things that I have, and uh, just going forward each day, having a good time with world class. I, you know, and that's why I'm excited to have you on because you lived through the, you know, the golden years of world-class championship wrestling. And I like what you said. Like, we're, of course, we're going to bring up a couple of negative things. But we're not going to dwell on the negatives or anything else. Forget that. Um, but one thing, you can follow uh, Lance on Twitter at SMU Heavyweight. Now, tell me, did you wrestle heavyweight at SMU? <laughs> Kevin Von Erich asked me that one time. No, they don't have a wrestling team. I was part of the sports. Ah. sports. I was an athletic trainer at SMU, and I just when Twitter came about, I just put SMU, and I, eh, heavyweight, and uh, it went from there and stuff. I might I might be different now that, uh, you know, after several years, I didn't realize we were going to use, uh, you know, Twitter. I'd, I'd be on there for 11 years. So, uh, no, I just did that, but I did go to SMU. I actually graduated with uh, Harley Race's son from SMU, and I knew him 
uh, played against him in intramurals, had a couple of classes with him, and did not know that he was Harley Race's son until about two weeks before graduation. Uh, it really, I just couldn't believe it because at the time when I graduated from SMU in 93, I still thought Harley Race was the greatest ever. Now I'm he, top three or four, at the, you know, after time, but um, I still consider Harley Race right up there. And I did get to meet him at our graduation at SMU. <laughs> so that was a big deal. I, I graduated that day. Yeah, that was a big deal. But I met, also met Harley Race. <laughs> <laughs> That's a big, uh, it's a big joke in my family. I tell that story, how, how important it was to my parents. And here I'm all thinking, oh, I just met Harley Race. <laughs> <laughs> that is great. You know, I think I feel like you and I could have a an hour long podcast just talking SMU football, especially you going like during the the death penalty era, and then Forrest Greg coming in, and you know uh, Houston trying to put up a hundred on him. What a, what a bunch of jerks! I was but... a, I was an athletic trainer, and I was there with Forrest Greg. He's very nice to me. I have a picture on Twitter of me walking out of the uh, the tunnel with him. He was uh, actually fantastic. So I was there the year. They uh, death penalty is 86. They didn't play 87. Uh, the fall of 88, they had practices. And then 89, we start playing games. And they won two games that year. And, I, you know, they did a 30 by 30 on ESPN about the, the team. And I was right there, traveled with them, and did that for two years with SMU. I'm not even a big SMU fan, but one of my favorite football memories was the SMU freshmen, when, once they became seniors, getting a little bit of revenge on the University of Houston. Like I said, <laughs> don't don't get me started, okay? I was there. That was horrible. Jack Pardee ran that score up. I remember. Even uh, Johnny Carson made fun of it on The Tonight Show a couple of days later. Excellent. I did not know that. Lance, when did you become a fan of this crazy business? Like where you grew up around Dallas or in Dallas? Yeah, in Dallas proper. Exactly. And what had happened was that this syndicated show, now I'll talk about syndicated show, the Channel 39 show out of the Sportatorium that was filmed every other Friday. There was also a show in Fort Worth that was weekly. But the, the show, that the Channel 39 show, the show that's on the network, started doing commercials in the summer of 82. They had started filming late in 81, but by 82, they were doing um, commercials. And it was during all of the summer when they're showing Brady Bunch reruns, things like that, and they're doing commercials for the show. And they're showing that they're going to interview Bugsy McGraw at the water park or going to go duck hunting with the Von Ericks. And so I, you know, I didn't know what was going on. But by uh, the time we all went back to school in the fall of uh, 82, everybody's talking wrestling, and I'm full in by October, November, right before the the heyday hits, the uh, the cage match on Christmas with the, the cage door. And that's when, you know, things just caught fire and we were off to the races. To say the least, you know, and I, I'm, one, I'm certainly not trying to be negative here. I got all excited maybe five years ago when uh, WWE Network put on like 1982 World Class Championship Wrestling. Um and, you know, I'm like, oh, well, I've never seen this stuff before. It didn't get covered in the after magazine. It's going to be like a brand new territory, a year's worth. And it just wasn't very good. And then and I remember uh, back in the old WWE 24-7 uh, days, uh, the show was hosted by Michael Hazen and Kevin Von Erich. And they started when the Freebirds got there, and Michael Hayes is talking to the audience, says, look, be patient, it's going to get better. And, you know, it's tough having a, a territory with King Kong Bundy and Wild Bill Irwin being your top heels, but uh, talk about trading up with the Freebirds. I'm going to tell you, you hit the nail on the head about 82. 81 had been hot, and I wasn't watching, but... 
luckily we have some of that stuff we can go back and see now. That was the year of Kabuki in Dallas, was 81, and that was fabulous. But by 82, um, we didn't have any strong heel except Ric Flair coming in, defending against Kerry and some of the other uh, baby faces. But then we traded up, as you said. The Freebirds come in, and it's off to the, as I said, off to the races. You've got six guys that can have matches. The that first feud, when they first came in, went 19 months. Uh, sorry, 20 months. They had every stip in the book, but not overdone. I mean, they would have stips every few weeks, but they would have regular matches all the time, and then every few months they'd have the big six man. Usually at Fort Worth, the Fort Worth. Uh, show, usually the big Star Wars, Fort Worth show was usually highlighted by the six man, while Dallas shows at Reunion Arena were usually uh, the world champion in. And they did a great job on that six man. Those guys just went after it. And nowadays, we know how everyone thought about Terry Gordy behind the scenes, how everybody liked him. And And when you watch it, you see how Terry Gordy is giving so much of himself to let make the guy shine, and at the same time, he's becoming this star. And I'll say this, Buddy Roberts and Terry, they kind of combined to be the MVPs of 1983. Um, they just give so much. It was fantastic. Now, the boys ha- had a name here in Dallas, the Von Erichs, but it was really this that put them on the map. And I want to say one thing. You know, David, Kevin, and Kerry, they got to grow but not under the microscope like Mike did later. Mike was so under the us uh, under the microscope from the very beginning. And so I always give Mike a lot of slack and I'm a, actually could make a big case for Mike in his career but uh you know sometimes people don't want to hear it. Uh anyways, yeah, it was just great that these six guys could just have tons of matches. I mean, I I've defended Mike in the past. I mean, you know, they they brought him out there uh the end of 1983 when he clearly wasn't ready, but that wasn't his decision, you know? I mean, send him off to Portland for a couple of years. And when Mike had his his encounter with Toxic Shock, I mean, it's right there on Peacock if you want to look at it. He was getting really big. Yes, he had put on the muscle, and then he goes and is out for all this time and comes back. And a lot of people, sometimes I think it's uh, something they use as a crutch to say that Mike had, you know, had problems mentally after the fever. I don't see it. I don't see it. He comes back right around October. Well, he comes back July of 86, but he's, it's really the the last few months of 86 into the beginning of 87. He starts a feud with Brian Adias that, is fantastic. He looks as comfortable as he can in the ring. He had had such great teachers. If we talk about Mike, first he had had a big feud with Buddy Roberts. Then he has a huge feud with Gino. And I can tell that both of them helped. After Gino, there was Jake Roberts was in. He had a feud with Jake Roberts. They all, all you can tell, are showing Mike the ropes. And Mike is comfortable. And another, one other thing I'll say on Mike, and we keep moving on, Mike was a tough son of a gun. He does not, there's no wimp to it. He's putting in the effort. He's getting thrown out of the ring and landing on the floor. He's doing everything. 
um, you know, he was just under the microscope. And then again, there was just a few guys that really wrote the history back then of the, uh, and what they said kind of got spread into today. When, if you go back and look for yourself, you can make your own decisions. I very much agree. I think Mike, you know, I think he gets a lot of slack that is uh, is unwarranted. And like I said, a lot of the stuff that happened, you know, wasn't his fault. And like you said, you know, he was trying. You could tell he was really make putting an effort out there. Lance, I want to try to give me an idea. Like growing up in Dallas, like did you go to the Sportatorium regularly? Did you go to reunion the big reunion arena shows? I did. I went to. Uh, I did not go the Christmas night cage match but right after that was the big uh april 1st of 83 uh it's state fair coliseum kevin and flair and david versus gordy with uh handcuffs uh and that's where gordy knocks uh pushes the fan front row and i'm sure you've seen that clip out there many, a million times that was the my first show i'd gone to and then i would start going to all the reunion arena shows the thanksgivings the christmases and the texas stadiums from then on there had been a uh, couple of early shows in the 70s they had done at Texas Stadium they'd done the Fritz retirement in 82 but it was starting at 84 the five that you know everyone remembers because they're on the network and uh, I I would go I would always have a program or two I'm kind of they tease me on booking the territory a lot of the guys because you know I'm all about the programs I put them up on Twitter and I was at about 90 percent of the programs I have now as far as the sportatorium by the time I got my license in eight, end of 86 beginning of 87 then I was down there a lot uh, more and more and by the time the network cuts off is right when I am there at the most I was there for all of Kerry Von Erich versus Jerry Lawler I was there for all of uh, Steve Austin Chris Adams Steve Austin's whole first year I was there on the front row I think I have 30 of the 52 weeks of the program uh, so it and it was like a carnival if I can explain the sportatorium uh, you hear a lot of things. It, when you walked in, it smelled like a carnival with all the concessions. Uh, everybody was at least familiar with faces. You know, if you didn't know them, at least you you saw them all the time. And uh, you see the, the uh, if you see the profile picture that I always have in, on my Twitter, it's a picture of Carrie's at my feet while Kevin's racing around the ring, and there I'm front row, and that's where I sat for many many years. That is completely that is completely awesome. Front row to, to see the Von Erichs. I remember, of course, I remember Terry Gordy pushing that fan. We got world class championship wrestling uh, in Boston starting like the I want to say February '83, and I remember that. And as soon as it happens, my phone rings, and one of my friends is like, "Did you see what Terry Gordy just did?" I'm like, "Yes, I did." And as we're talking, like not even thirty seconds, the call waiting goes off. And it's like someone else wants to know if I saw what just happened. So it's a must-see if you haven't seen this. Like I said, Terry sends this guy into orbit. It was a riot. Lance, what was it like? Give me an idea. The build-up for the 1984 Parade of Champions show, did you go in there kind of knowing that Kerry was going to win the title? My quote is always that, I, I, are they going to give it? I, are they going to give it to him? Are they going to give it to him? I just... You know, it seemed like it was possible, but, um, you know, I'd been watching a year and a half at the time. I kind of knew how this worked with the traveling world champion, and uh, but I, I didn't know. Now, on TV, and it's not on the network, they've cut it out, and it's, it was also on the Channel 11 show that out of Fort Worth, 
the, all the heels and all the faces did interviews saying that they thought Kerry would win the belt. So they're pushing it that far that even the bad guys are saying he's going to change it. it. The title's going to change. So, no, I couldn't guarantee it. I did ask Mark Lorenz, the, the commentator, if he knew. And, he, and I, you know, I've had a lot of dealings with him. He's always super nice. But he, he said, well, it was hinted at me. <laughs> so, yeah. Nice. Mark, obviously, Mark was uh, – we were so lucky to have Mark. And sometimes people make fun of him online. But Bill Mercer didn't have to do what Bill uh, – that Mark Lorenz did on our Channel 11 Fort Worth show. The Fort Worth show went out to North Texas basically only. And it was selling the spot shows and selling the all the, the big house shows. While Bill Mercer had on the Channel 39 network show, he is more generalized. His show's on more of a delay. He's uh, he, he's really not going to any any detail compared to what we were seeing on this other channel. And it brings about why it was so popular. They're such passionate fans is because, yes, you had the network show, but this Channel 11 show that was filmed Monday nights in Fort Worth aired the following Saturday, and everybody did interviews on it. So it was uh, – it, it really – we saw the guys three times as much as we saw them on the network show. But back to Texas Stadium, you know, I was hoping uh, that he would win. I didn't know that Crockett was – planning a Meadowlands and going to be, you know, definitely going with Flair and Steamboat and that, you know, even if Kerry got the belt, he wasn't going to have it for long. Um, I wasn't thinking that way. Uh, the idea that Fritz was coming to team and they were going to have this Bad Street match, that six-man, I don't want to underestimate that because the atmosphere of the six-man and the atmosphere of Kerry's title win are very unique, um, especially Kerry's title win. It was really... Uh, one of the best produced things that they ever did from start to finish on the network. It does show Flair coming out from the uh, the tunnel all the way to the when Kerry wins and he goes back in the tunnel. It's all there for us. Uh, yes, the music that Kerry came out to is not there, and that is an issue with the network. But um, it is a spectacle. I do have a, a free show on YouTube where Mike and I am booking territory. Did did cover the two episodes that with Texas Stadium 84, but it was fantastic. Now, we weren't sat. David had been passed away a few uh, months by the time the show was on, so there weren't people really, you know, crying or anything like that at the show for the memory uh, because David had been gone, you know, a, a few months. But never underestimate that funeral for, for David was huge, and at the cemetery, the, the line of cars was just Unbelievable. And there are people that still go out to that cemetery. Um, I live very close to it. There's people that still go out there to those gravesides. And usually um, on certain uh, web, uh, Facebook pages of On Air, they talk about, they'll show, oh, I went out to, you know, I came to Dallas and I went to uh, Grove Hill Cemetery. That's the kind of fans that, you know, still are out there. That that really is wild. You know, you were talking about the uh, the Meadowlands and you know how you knew kind of knew Kerry wasn't going to keep the title. I mean, for me, it was very confusing because I went to the Meadowlands show. I had planned on going, and on one station, uh, Channel Twenty Five in Boston, Kerry Von Erich is the NWA champion, and on WTBS, Ric Flair is the champion. <laughs> and you know, it, it's just a complete mess. And you know, I don't want to rag on Ole Anderson too much, but you know, you got to realize that hey, you got tell people what's going on yeah Kerry won the title and then he lost it you know no big deal but he refused to do that right right I went to uh, I went to Florida during uh, one of Dusty's 
uh, quick reigns. And, uh, you know, they didn't mention it on TV. They only said the world champion will be in. <laughs> Something like that. Oh, man. You know, that was the second time that they had basically booked Kerry into a corner where he almost absolutely had to win the title or lose all face. The first time was Christmas night, 1982, when it's like, okay, how on earth is Ric Flair going to get out of this? And, well, he figured out a way. Michael Hayes went crazy and, and turned on the Von Erichs. And this time, though, in 84, you know, I remember watching it on again on Channel 25 in Boston and being like, okay, how are they going to get out of Kerry not winning the championship? It, 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 it looked impossible. Yeah, it exactly, was exactly and it wouldn't have worked uh, any other way it, it was just perfect it's a quick match you know the match is maybe 10 minutes at the most and it was very hot that day but they got that's all, what i've heard they got in the quick the quick moves i was young i wasn't thinking about it i actually tailgated that day i uh, watched uh, rick flair drive into texas stadium we were out there throwing the football and i remember going where i wonder where he was last night and it was you know 20 years later we have the internet and i'm able to go oh he was in portland the whole week and we seen shoot interviews where he was talking about being hanging out with piper the night before he came in for the texas stadium show such cool stuff that we're able to find now that we have the internet Oh, definitely. I mean, you know, <laughs> I mean, you had no access to any information, you know, ba- besides like the After magazines or the Kaiser magazines. Everything else was was guesswork. Well, there was a guy a little early on that had some tape trading, and I would download his tape tra- his tapes, the a copy of your catalog, and that way I could see the matches in order before certain ones of these sites came up that really put the history in order. Because of course it had been you know twenty thirty years since I had seen all the shows, and uh, you know that was one early way that I could you know keep up with the order of how things went down in world classes because I had your uh, your catalog. Oh, thank you. Thank oh, you very that's, much that's for that. I, absolutely. Well, thank you. Uh, one, here's something I wanted to ask you about. We talked about Kerry almost being booked into a corner where, where he had to win the championship. Right before David died, I, you know, it felt like they totally booked him into a corner where he had to win the belt. Now, there's all kinds of internet myth out there. You know, was David Von Erich promised the NWA championship or not? I've always thought promised was a funny word, but it always felt to me, as someone who watched the show, that David was getting a run with that championship uh, early 1984. What, what are your thoughts on that, Lance? I always say no. Because wow, I, I do. I say no, uh, pretty firm compared to a lot of people saying he would. Uh, we Sam in St. Louis and Munchnik had retired. He was not booking the championship. Crockett was in charge of it. Uh, the Kevin Von Erich said has quoted that you know he didn't he didn't know where they stood with those guys. Never could we couldn't trust them. I, I guess that was the idea. You know Fritz had always stayed loyal to NWA, but once Crockett had the belt uh, in charge of it, they just didn't know. So if David had gotten it, it would have been the same carry run. Um, you know if things had been different, Sam as Sam goes another two or three years, David gets the belt for sure. They, uh, if David had lived, I feel like we would be celebrating David on the level of Terry Funk. The the how we how we view Terry Funk now, I think that would have been David. Um, sorry, not not enough people have seen probably tapes, um, especially because Florida's not out there on the network. Don't we wish that was there when he was a heel? But he was capable of going anywhere and whatever role he needed to be in. And if he had been a 
uh, you know, a heel. Uh, he could have traveled with the belt. It would have been wonderful. He could do matches with anybody. I have always talked up David Von Erich on this show. I think his future would have been as a heel, maybe in the WWF, like a level of challenging Hulk Hogan at WrestleMania. Like that's how big I think he would have gotten. And, you know, people forget David Von Erich was the same age, basically, as a lot of the guys who were part of the Monday Night Wars. I think he was younger than Kevin Nash. I think he was younger than Bret Hart. I think he was right around the same age as Scott Hall. I mean, David had an incredibly bright future ahead of him, in my opinion, and it, it just didn't go down that road, obviously. Yes, and he was his, his level of respect that the guys have for him what is off the charts unlike anything else uh well no i'm not going to say that but you know you don't hear guys talked about all the time in that high regards dave uh, flair just thought david was great and uh, i raised it too and uh you know you see ex little things little clips here and there of guys and they, it's like clickbait oh what this guy said about him but usually it's all respectful i mean Flair did a ton for the Von Erichs in the role he was supposed to do. Harley Race did too. Uh, sometimes people say, well, Harley wouldn't put Kerry over for the uh, St. Louis belt. He made it a DQ, and that's how Kerry won. Well, he had just done the done a job for Kerry at Texas Stadium in 82. So, you know, it all works out. Uh, but again, David just had this respect on uh, of everyone. Yeah, I, I mean, and people, you know, if you disagree, here's what I recommend you do, okay? Look at David Von Erich. He when he died when he was 24 years old. Pick a wrestler, any wrestler, and look where that what that wrestler was doing when he was 24. I guarantee he was not as high up on the card as David Von Erich, and it wasn't just a, a Fritz pushing him thing. He was a big star in St. Louis. He got over big in Florida. I mean, he he got his Japan tour. I mean, you know, like I said, he, he was just starting out. Many times to Japan. Uh, many times to Japan, especially with Kevin. And uh, it, it, that when David died, that did. It, there's no doubt that Kevin is never the same. It was Kevin that was never the same after David. They were just too close. There's a match early in '82 on the network where they're at Reunion Arena. They win tag belts, and you see the passion that Kevin has to be out there with David. Uh, I think that you know David had gone away then in '82, and then they were glad he was back. He had traveled. He had done this and that. It's funny when David came back from Florida and he'd been a heel, but of course he's going to be a face in Dallas. He was carrying a bull rope around. He was going to any does this interview that he's going to carry this bull rope wherever he goes and the next week the bull rope is gone I, I think it was just a little too strong for Fritz he was like wait a minute we're not pushing that we're pushing you know these wholesome athletic guys we're not we're not there we're not he's not going to be this rough cowboy on here in the way we're pushing things and so David didn't, you know, it was always the athletics, the, the embellishment of the athletics and carry in the Olympics early on. That kind of that didn't just keep going on that talk forever. But, you know, early on, it was all about that Kerry had they had boycotted the Olympics and or Kerry would have gone. <laughs> and, yeah, there's about 100 wrestlers that would have gone to the 1980 Olympics. Jesse Barr, I, I could name a whole bunch of them. But I mean, Kerry was a great athlete. No one can deny that, you know, didn't so, so was David. So was Kevin. Like for real, they were. Well, yeah, they're oh, they're great athletes in wrestling. It's just they're you know the, the embellishments of their high school and oh you know, yeah records. Now Kerry did have a you know a throw a throws in high school of a shot put. It was actually Brian Adias in world class that was 
really uh, uh, far and away a better. He was a he was the shot putter, and said Kerry was discus, and he actually is in the Hall of Fame in in the Southland Conference and things like that. And they never pushed that whenever Brian's around until way late in his career that he was any kind of athlete. They uh you know it was it was the boys' territory. The boys are selling the tickets. So anything anybody wants to say, if guys say ah oh, they made those Von Erichs win every match, this and that, I uh, have plenty of headlines where they didn't win every match. They had Freebirds got plenty of wins in and things like that. So, uh, you know, it was uh, it wasn't crazy. They weren't winning every match with the claw. You'll hear clips where guys say, "Ah, oh, they always said they wanted to win with the claw." The claw by the time of the heyday, this 83-45, they would the claw would be in there, but that was definitely not the not the thing. It was just you know a, a brawling territory, and uh, oh, it was good times. I, I I believe you. I mean, I wish I had uh, lived through, through some of the things you lived through. I mean, I'm I'm very jealous. Now we talked a little bit about the 1984 Texas Stadium show, and there was another uh, very significant development. You know, beside the Bad Street match, beside Kerry winning the championship, Gino Hernandez, after being a wall from wrestling for about a year, shows up. And as soon as I saw that, I was like, okay, the Freebirds are on their way out, and this guy's going to be the top heel, and for once I was right. You're hitting the nail on the head. It is absolutely, when he comes out at the beginning of the last match at Texas Stadium, it's it's actually, it's Garvin and Precious versus Sunshine and uh, Chris Adams. He gets on the microphone. He's, he runs both Garvin and Adams down right there. So immediately discounts them who are fixing to have a main event. And I didn't care about anything except, holy cow, Gino's here. Now, I knew Gino because I was a big magazine guy and knew who Gino was. And, you know, we got Southwest ever here and there, not regularly. And that is exactly right. That is the second half, beginning of the second half of what I call the heyday. I say the heyday goes from the cage match through May of 84, so right there, a year and a half, basically, and then a year and a half from that that through the end of 85, which were really, I would say, October when there was the big hair match with uh, Chris Adams and uh, Gino versus Kevin and Kerry. But Gino coming in was so fantastic. We, we had such a strong run of single villains. Of course, we had the, uh, the Freebirds as this top team, but the single heel was Garvin for the first year and a half. Then we got Gino Hernandez for another year and a half. Then they brought in Rick Rude, and it was uh, it was okay. Rick Rude didn't develop to, to be the Rick Rude everybody knows in WWF till right at the end of his world-class day. Um, the Freebirds had come back in, and it looks like he kind of upped his game. And, it, and then at the end of 86, they give us Black Bart. <laughs> so we had this run of great heels, uh, single heels, and then they give us Black Bart as our world champion. <laughs> it just was a drop-off. <laughs> I have discussed this on the show many times. I mean, they should have done literally anything else but Black Bart. And that's not disrespect. I'm not disrespectful. Expecting Black Bart, I thought he was really good in the ring, especially for a big guy. But here's a guy who was on national cable for about a year and a half, more than that, yeah, about a year and a half before they made him world champion, and he was a middle, a mid card guy on national cable. Fritz, people watch that show. I'm sorry. Yep. 
Yep, and he did, well, out of touch with that, but I don't know what else they could have done. Uh, Chris Adams had gone to jail. He was the world champion. They had to get it over to somebody so Kevin could win it at the Cotton Bowl. And I don't know what their plan was if if Chris Adams had not gone to jail. I, I don't know where that would have gone, that, that October 86 Cotton Bowl. Uh, but anyways, it went with Kevin beating Black Bart. So they didn't leave the title on Black Bart very long, but they tried for a, for a second to keep him strong. Uh, a real secret in there is that they had, you know, uh, Bam Bam Bigelow in at that time as, uh, you know, he was, I knew who he was from magazines, but he was pretty un- unknown to the fans, and they didn't use Bam Bam Bigelow. They used Crusher Yurkoff name. But what, a ba- what a mess. He is, that was a mistake. Yeah, he is the second most talented person in the promotion because at that point, Kerry was out, Mike was out, uh, just coming back. But Kevin and Bam Bam, you know, Bigelow, they were, you could already see it in Bigelow that he, he was going to be something. Um, they didn't see it yet, and I would have put the title on him in a heartbeat and se- tried to see if we could have kept him for a little longer. But I think him and Sharp had a falling out, and uh, they, they left at the same time, and they weren't here very long at all. No, him and Larry had a major falling out, and both both of them had wildly different sides <laughs> of the story, to put it, to put it uh, gently. Anyway, yeah, so I agree with you, though. Like, to me, World Class, the golden years, it started Christmas night, 1982. Yeah, Flair and Kerry had some great matches before that, but it's not the Freebirds von Erichs feud. And I've always said it kind of died when Gino and Chris got their head shaved at the Cotton Bowl, and just no one ever replaced them were, were you at that show i was at that at that show it was just fantastic and one of the things i just uh, learned in the last year if you watch the tape after they shave gino he immediately goes out to the ring and there's a girl kind of it's, she stands out because she's in the yellow and um she's next to this man and gino immediately grabs her sweater and goes to the back and i paused it because i said wait a minute when we they did the episode, the Dark Side of the Ring episode, they show Gino's real-life manager, and that's him, and that's the girl next to him with that man. And so, it, you know, these are little things that I just love finding out uh, with World Class. <laughs> I, I, you know, it's pretty neat. I was at that hair match. The problem with that hair match was, and they team they had that was October, Thanksgiving. They read there. It's another tag match. Christmas, another tag match. They should have moved their split up and had their first Chris and Gino match at Christmas of 85. They moved it a month later, and unfortunately that's the week before you know Gino dies. Yeah, one thing about World Class, I, I do have a criticism here, is that the feuds tended to go on a little bit too long. I thought the Freebirds feud went on too long. I thought, I thought it should have ended at Texas Stadium, which even then, I mean, you're looking at a year and a half long feud. And then, like you said, we're, you know, okay, the, the issue has been settled between the Von Erics and Gino and Chris. They, you know, Von Erics win. They won the hair match. It's over. And they bring it back, like you said, not only Thanksgiving, but Christmas as well. Now, here's something I've always thought. I thought they turned the wrong guy. In that feud, I thought Chris Adams had turned heel, what, just like a year and a half right, ago? Right. One of my all time favorite uh, turns, by the way. And I thought it was Gino's turn to, turn to shine in a babyface role. What do you think of that? I think that's great. I think you're absolutely right. Chris Adams should never, ever in his career have ever gone back face. But 
he he had this area. He wanted to promote this area. He wanted to live here. He wanted to be the star, but he wasn't going to be a Von Erich. He should have stayed strong at that heel. He should have grown his hair back and been somewhere somewhere else as the heel Chris Adams in any other promotion anywhere. At, I know there weren't a lot of promotions by the beginning of 80, 86, but he should have stayed, and uh, Gino could have gotten it. Now, Gino had been a, had, actually had a face run in uh, in Dallas in 77, uh, oh, yeah. 78 um, in there. He had done it. It would have been great, and Gino had the fans. As I've said to you uh, off the air, I said, you know, one thing I'll mention is Gino's death was a huge, huge uh, part of the the crowd going down. He had fans, and you don't hear him cheering like that on TV. But you, at the at the at the matches, he was beloved. And I'll say this as a passionate. Uh, world-class Von Erich fan, he obviously was a soldier for the company. He did anything that was asked of him. You see it. And they all loved him by, behind the stage. They were so glad when he came back world-class. Here's Gino. So happy to see him. Yeah, I mean, I I look at it, I looked at it back then. I'm like, look, you know, you have the wholesome uh, milk and cookies Von Erichs, and then you have uh, also on the babyface side this kind of bad boy is Gino Hernandez. Of course, he's got to do more babyface things, but you know, he he and Kevin and Kerry would have been a great contrast, kind of like Michael Hayes and Kerry oh, yeah. in 1988. Yes, yes, and they were doing things like that. We had seen Kerry and uh, Kabuki team up for a while. Uh, they they. They were not a. They had done some strange. They had done a Brody and the Missing Link. They had done tag teams like that. So yeah, that was uh, that would have been funny to uh, to see Gino and them during the heyday that Gino goes to face. That would have been a. That would have been unique. You know, I was talking about the the Chris Adams turn, um, which I thought was a, a fantastically done turn. Uh, Kevin gets upset at Gary Hart, which, you know, he has a right to be. Then Kevin starts getting handsy with Gary Hart, and Chris comes in, and he's like, hey, you know, you can't push around my manager. And you kind of understood why Chris did what he did, but then, you know, it was almost like Chris is like, okay, well, everyone hates me now, so I might as well be the bad guy. I love turns like that. That. It, it, it was perfect, and and they made him kind of a chicken shit for a second. They um, and I don't know if I can use that term. I'm sorry if I, uh, if right. I use no, that. Don't worry about it. Uh, you know, Hart it's would, been used. Hart would protect him early on, and you know, they he wouldn't engage with Kevin, but. Uh, then it it changed. Uh, they didn't do that at all. Him begging off type of deal or high, getting out of the ring. He would go at it with Kevin and Kerry. And the difference between the Freebirds and Von Erichs, the first half and the second half, is that the Von Erichs and Freebird feud was brawling, brawling, brawling. And when it got to Gino and Chris's feud, Kerry and Kevin are wrestling. You see rest, uh, more of wrestling moves, wrestling matches, um it, that and so it's it's a totally different style when it comes to that. Um, it, it certainly wasn't as hot as that that '83 period. And you know I can go into detail on and on about '83 because it, it, nothing gets hotter, no territory gets as hot than hotter than world class in '83 from start to finish. It did start off, I'll say, a, the January after the cage match. You still had some old fogey stogies in here, okay? Some guys that were not young, and they would still once in a while try to bring in some uh, some old guys like Killer Carl Krupp would come in, and you could see, no, no, it, the time has changed. We're getting rid of all these old people, and we're going to have Von Erichs, 
Freebirds, Iceman, J- Jimmy Garvin, and uh, Chris Adams. And you're going to have this youth. I mean, the, the, the average age of the, uh, the roster went down to 23 from uh, 35. I have always wondered about this, Lance. Maybe you can uh, shed some light on it. The Von Erichs promotion, world class, was kind of built around you know young, good-looking guys like the Von Erichs, like Chris Adams. You know, even Michael Hayes has his female admirers. And then in '86, they kind of went to this like Bruiser Brody versus Abdul the Butcher and Blackjack Mulligan kind of thing. And even as I watched it, I was like, you know, what this you know this promotion has gone from one thing to the other i i've always wondered did that run off the girls quite quite quickly they followed them straight over to uwf across town they fall yep. and i added it's, it's the fantastics it is the fantastic because carrie's out okay and uh mike wasn't getting the girls like that bringing them in the fantastics were a huge part of it and they do get the fantastics back in 87 they'd been there in 85 and they're back a tiny bit in 86 but they didn't end up being on the card even they were promoted for the 80, 86 Texas Stadium when you could just go 40 miles across town to uh, Fort Worth from Dallas and there's the UWF on Sunday afternoons and you've got the Fantastics that's where we're, where the Fantastics go the girls in Dallas went and, and so when the Fantastics come back in 87 the girls do come back you hear the chant, the crowd at the sportsroom when they come back in early 87 you hear the the, the high pitch of the girls uh, you know the uh, screaming for the Fantastics they're back it it was it was a pretty boy uh, promotion without a doubt a pretty boy fan and then it, but Brody is there like the uh, the big brother of the of the of the Von Erichs and so you know he's an honorary Von Erich but the girls aren't chasing him right <laughs> so, no. but he has the pool in the in the in the office and he can bring in people they're just not getting the young youth people anymore at that point there's there's really a lack of talent on the scene the fact that UWF has taken a lot of people. I mean, they took a huge migration in the summer of 86 over there. But Brody stays loyal to Fritz. He's got Abby where he can bring Abby in. And then they do Abdul the Butcher. Uh, Blackjack Mulligan left out of nowhere. So they had to do Brody, Abby early in uh, summer. And it had to jump started early. Then they do Abby and Brody Cotton Bowl. Uh, they do an angle at Thanksgiving. They do an angle at Christmas. And then uh, Brody's in a mask for uh, three or four months. We're doing more uh, Brody, Abby. It's, uh, yeah, it's Abby should not be in that much at all anywhere. And uh, we're actually getting a feel of Bruiser Brody. And that's hard to say because he is beloved here. Um, he's, a, he's a huge deal to us. And there is nothing better than Bruiser Brody coming in for three months in the middle of the heyday in 83 and facing Terry Gordy. That is uh, that's worth it any time you can see one of their matches. I remember watching that and, you know, the announcement that Bruiser Brody was going to be Kerry Von Erich's tag team partner. And Michael Hayes says, I know he's not going to be Dusty Rhodes because he's too fat. And I was like, I was wondering <laughs> what was going on with that. Um, but anyway, you know, I, I, and I fully expected Bruiser Brody to turn on the Von Erichs on that night. But nope, he, he stayed loyal to the end. Um, Lance Von Erich, let's talk about him. What was now Lance was over like crazy. 
crazy in world class championship no, watch wrestling. Watch what you say. Those passionate Von Eric fans on some of the Facebook pages will be mad at you. But yes, you are right. They, yes, he was well liked, well cheered. <laughs> I mean, I watch the stuff on TV, and you know the fans, you know they're they're screaming like he's like a Beatles concert. So you know, you can't tell me he's not over. But as someone who Speaking for myself, they're just like, oh, uh, they had a, a uh, Fritz von Erich and Waldo von Erich were brothers, and they just said, oh, this is Waldo's kid. And I was, and I was like, oh, okay. Uh, from your perspective, from someone who was down there, what was it like to you and those around you when suddenly Lance von Erich, who had been mentioned in 1983 but didn't show up until 1985 when he was at the Cotton Bowl show, I mean, what was your reaction to that? I thought it was just part of the show john um i really did i knew the i knew how this thing worked i you know i they were, they just needed to fill the void and they were trying i was amazed with the book that came out last year i there was, it answered so many questions for me with the timeline that they had set that up a, uh, over a year earlier, I knew that they had mentioned a Lance von Eric on TV. Uh, you know, that's always one of the the weird things in the world is that they they mentioned him so far ahead, and I think it was even before they started looking for him when they mentioned that on TV. Of course, it it's amazing. Uh, it, it, the timeline that they sent him up to Portland for years, you said he comes back. They didn't protect him for that long. He ate some pins eventually. Some that, you know, the, the camera didn't catch that he had his foot on the rope and, and Mercer didn't explain it or anything. Um, unfortunately, at the, at the time, you know, Kevin apparently behind the scenes was not happy about the whole situation at all. Carrie's as fun loving and didn't mind. But I think Kevin, Kevin says that we had never lied to our fans. I don't, you know, that's a big joke with me because it's all of it is a con, you know, <laughs> come on. Oh, yeah. So, you know, Kevin's saying that thing and I think he's changed a little, uh, about, the way he felt about Lance at the time is what I understand uh, from the author, Vinnie Berry, who wrote that book, Lance by Chance. Uh, it, it, so that, that timeline was very good. Um, and again, right when Mike passes away in April of 87, you do, you, you're still in that Brody Abbey. There's not a lot of pretty boys coming in. Um, yeah, that that eighty seven. Once we get into eighty seven, it's it's just who's ever they can get on the card. It's some really crazy stuff. <laughs> yeah, I mean there were you know a bunch of promotions. Really, everyone outside of WWF and uh, uh, JCP, the NWA. It's like okay, we started off nineteen eighty six as at least kind of a at least a mid major promotion, and then by the end of nineteen eighty six, you know, world class. I mean, you know, it just kind of bottomed out. So so did the AWA. So did Mid South. Yeah. You know, it, it was it was. I mean, it's just the way it was going to go. As soon as wrestling went national, there was only going to be one or two companies. Exactly, and it, it was such a fall from grace at the beginning of '86. The Freebirds had come back in for another six-month run, and before they before the UWF run, and they're here for six months. And it's kind of like old times. It's really neat. Uh, that's that's somewhere in there. If you ever think if Stone Cold Steve Austin on the on things says that he went to the Sportatorium, that's really when he went to the Sportatorium. Was right there during that beginning of '86 period. That's when he would go down and see the sport uh, the Von Erichs wrestling at the sportatorium and stuff just a little note there uh you know there's also there it's uh it, that was a neat time to relive because we'd had the long von eric freebird feud they come back for a 
cup of coffee in 85. They were on the Texas Stadium show. They teamed with the Von Erichs. You know, it was a big 12-man match. But they were immediately off to uh, the AWA and uh, did their thing in AWA. And then told Vern, said, we're leaving for Texas. You know, they wouldn't book them against the, the Road Warriors enough and things like that. They did eventually, I think, as, as they were on their way out. But they had already told Vern that they were going back to Texas. And so they come in at the beginning of 86. Uh, Mike is out at the beginning of 86. They, they actually do like a talk show from the Sportatorium once, a local talk show. There's a lot of cool stuff in uh, in the beginning of 86. Uh, the, the, the WWF did that, or E, did that video game a few years ago where they put a match from the Freebirds and Von Erichs in the game. And it was actually supposed to be this February of 86 match. That, uh, that I was actually at. It was Kevin and Kerry versus uh, Buddy and Michael Hayes. And uh, that was the match that they, they formed it. But in that game, they, uh, they, didn't use the, they can't use the Sportatorium name for some reason or just didn't. I don't know why, but that is when it was supposed to be from. That was the only time they had that tag team of, in 86 of those four. And stuff. So kind of neat little thing. Now, again, I've, I've, I've wanted to keep this positive because there's a lot of positive things you can say about world-class championship wrestling, way more than the negative. But yeah, what was it like in, let's say, in 87 when, I mean, things were going kind of bad for, from my perspective? I mean, the world-class had become... In my opinion, a decidedly minor league territory. Uh, it looked like they were just keeping the door, the, st- the doors open until Kerry came back, and, and Kerry wasn't able to come back for like a year and a half. I mean, what were your memories from that era? Yeah, they're they're trying. They had started a new production company, uh, had taken over the the filming, and you can notice on TV it does not look good on the network. There's a lot of new lighting that's really that will drive you nuts trying to watch. You could, I, I started seeing the crowds down, of course, and it was noticeable. But uh, I'm sorry, I was young and I only cared the fact that I was there. I wasn't watching for, you know, the crowd. I wasn't watching for work rate or. <laughs> like that i was looking oh, yeah. looking at me having a good time and it it was noticeable the texas stadium 87 you can see how empty the the stadium is you uh you if they if you see matches from fort worth which they show once in a while on the syndicated channel 39 show you'll see fort worth they barely had anybody in the second row. It is very, very bad. And that's when it was like, oh, this is this is really rough. And uh, they just couldn't get the stars. You know, the guys were gone. They were UWF really um, ate up everybody. And so you had weird things in 87. You had this Texas stadium that had all these people on it that were not around at the other other big shows, and they're not at the next one, uh, at, at not in 88. You know, you had Nord the Barbarian, Jeep Swenson. Uh, you know, uh, they did have a neat spectacle. That was the scaffold match at Texas Stadium. Which, oh, that thing. What a spectacle. Uh, it's, it's crazy to watch it. It's, the older you get, the more nuts you see that is. We just covered it on the, uh, the book in the Territory show I do with Mike. And, uh, you know, it's fantastic. A six-man on the scaffold. And it, the way the, the the stadium looks with a scaffold match, it just makes it where I think right now, if me or you went to the top of that scaffold and just walked across normal, I'm telling you, we'd get butterflies. <laughs> it was way up there. I assure you I would get butterflies. I mean, I saw 
recently rewatched the '86 Starcade with the you know the Jim where Jim Cornette got hurt, and I'm like, you know, I would not want to be that high up in the air and on top of this thing that's maybe two feet wide, and so world class decides to up the ante and have a scaffold that looks like it was like. Would you say what two stories, three stories up you know, in the air? You know, it's it's uh, every time I look at it and I compare it to those midnight uh, express ones, I think they're both twenty five. Yet the Texas Stadium, the two t- towers on each side, there's no guardrail, handrail, and there are on those NWA matches. And it and the way that the fact that it's outside and not da- a dark background, it's just. Uh, gives you a whole scarier look. Uh, they do say the Texas Stadium's higher than the others, but I, I, I really, it's a hard one to tell. Okay, I, you know, I, I recently, recently, like maybe four or five years ago, took a look at the '88 show, and I was just like, "Oh my god, that is that is so high up in the air." But did you go down in '88? World class really had made a comeback. Kerry was back. You had Michael Hayes and Terry Gordy were there uh, with the new Freebirds with Iceman. Michael becomes the babyface. Um, they bring in the SST, who are a phenomenal team. I mean, what are your thoughts generally about like that comeback in 1988? Yeah, so the idea of Kerry coming back, you know, and I think that that had mesmerized everyone. Michael Hayes came back in March of 88, and he had just had a huge run with Flair on several house on on a whole loop of house shows against Flair, and he comes back, um, and I think it's think they think that Kerry's going to reignite it. Um, some weeks he does. Some weeks it is exciting, and some weeks it is not uh, at, at all. They did the you know the thing at Christmas with with Fritz and the heart attack, which you know I, I'm never hard. That was just part of the show. I never you know I was right there just. I was, you know, I'm I'm a pretty easy going on everything and stuff. They they didn't fool me, <laughs> to say the least. Sometimes that gets a little overplayed. I thought oh, I was just a, you know, a wrestling a wrestling angle. But yeah, a lot of guys came back. The uh, the Fantastics were still there for a little while, which always helps. I mean, you just can't believe that they how they sold the tickets for the girls. It was it was that's what they did. Um, yeah, and that Texas Stadium, you got uh, Hayes and Gordy feuding uh, in going into the, that Texas Stadium in 88. They had the big three-story cage match, and I was like, well, they, I know what happened when they feuded several years ago. I think it'll be the same thing, and exactly it was. They uh, Gordy won and then uh, protected Michael Hayes from uh, Buddy and Iceman trying to cut his hair and stuff. So I was kind of and and so I kind of, eh. And that really started Terry Gordy being a kind of a face in the area, kind of a tweener. He would still fight Kerry for the world title, but he was teaming with the uh, Simpson brothers, whose dad had bought into the promotion at that time. Oh, that explains a lot. I had no idea that, that the Simpsons' father had uh, bought a piece of the promotion. Yeah. But, I mean, they were over as well. I mean, they, I think they, you know, were kind of Von Erich Juniors. But Steve Simpson was over, at least as far as I could see on TV. Lance, I could talk wrestling with you all day. We're just about out of time. But one thing I wanted to touch on in '86, you're, you're living in Dallas. And World Class is the primary promotion, but Mid South is invading Dallas. 
the NWA is invading Dallas. The WWF is trying to get their feet into Dallas, but my understanding is they weren't drawing well. What was it like, like having so many wrestling promotions, so many wrestling shows available to you in one area? Yeah, 1980s. Wow, it's fantastic. And even here, we we could watch uh, a different program every night one summer uh, at 10 o'clock, which showed different promotions. I I think a couple of them were um, NWA, but uh, we could watch Mid-South. We watch all these um, for a whole summer. It was just uh, unbelievable. But I was at that, um, you know, uh, the July 27th, the big UWF uh, NWA Super Show. Um, some one program. There's two programs from it. One says it's a bash, and the other says it's just a super show. And uh, my my pictures of that are all over my Twitter account. You'll see I'm sitting there front row, and you got that's the night that. Uh, Dusty had won the world title. He comes to the to the uh, ring with the big gold belt. First time he's defending the big gold belt here in Dallas. He, and and no one knew till he came out to the ring and took his jacket off. And there he is. He, we didn't know he'd won the title. Unbelievable. You know that's the way things went back then. Uh, that was a that was a super show. It had all the big feuds. You know, Rock and Roll Express and um, versus Midnight. It had every single big star and then it, the the results show you'll see what the attendance does they would bring in everybody but the attendance just wasn't there they really just never got a huge foothold in dallas nwa and it was not till 87 or so that i went to a show that um dingo warrior uh, ultimate warrior was on he wasn't on he wasn't uh, ultimate yet He's still dingo and he was here and hogan fought um Maybe Orndorff or Harley Race. I'm not sure which one. But that was when I was like, okay, now WWF's getting there. They've got it here in Dallas. Now now people are coming. coming Because we would laugh when we'd hear the uh, WWF coming into town and only drawing uh, 400 people at shows. You know, and they'd, sometimes they'd put them up against uh, the, world, the world-class show. I have one result where, you know, uh, they're both in town on the same night. And there wasn't anybody. They tried. They would bring in guys, you know, that had wrestled in Dallas before their whole deal. But, you know, nobody was going. That never seemed to work. Like when the WWF would try to draw in New Orleans with the Junkyard Dog, it never worked. They would try to draw in Atlanta with the former Georgia Stars, and it never worked. I just think that uh, wrestling fans are funny. They, you know, if they see their guy leave their promotion, they're like, ah, we, you know, we don't like you anymore. I've got to squeeze in one last question, Lance. You lived in Dallas. I'm guessing you still live there like early 90s, right? Oh, yes. Okay, so what was it like when Joe Pedicino came in and tried to get rolling with that, like, global wrestling thing? Did you pay any attention to that? Yeah, you know, I was getting a, a little older. I was uh, about to graduate college, and I would I would go down there um, sporadically. And I knew the ladies that I had set on the front row, these older ladies, the old-time wrestling old ladies, because the men had stopped going to wrestling at the Sportorium because smoking ban in arenas in about 88, 89 – it was unbelievable, the change almost overnight of these men weren't going to the sportorium anymore because you couldn't smoke in there. So, oh, wow. Yeah. So anyways, by 93, uh, 92, 93, I, I knew the ladies. I could walk in late. The doors were open, and I would go down there late and just walk in and sit in a box. And uh, I would go. I remember when they were starting it, Bruce Prichard was there, and, you know, they were all these new people, the handsome stranger, Buff Bagwell, and um, – 
you know, the Patriot was brand new. I was down there sometime in there. I was at the, in a box seat because uh, Booker T and uh, Stevie Ray sat down in the box next to me and uh, talked to the lady about they, how they wanted their first costumes once they come to Dallas. Uh, they were making them. But, you know, I knew they were wrestlers, but I didn't know who they were at all. You know, things like that. Kind of neat little experiences that I had. Um this has just been fantastic to talk all these things. Uh, I wanted to say, you know, Global, I know Global gets uh, a lot of people feel, ask me about Global because they came home from school and watched it. But I was a little older at the time. I do have the, the programs, but, um, you know, it's not as passion. I don't have the passion that I do for world class about it, I guess. I, no, I mean, it's a, yeah. it's a completely different thing, and you're a completely different person, obviously. You're an adult now. Yeah, exactly. You know, I was into it at when the World Class went to USWA, and I know my US, UW, USWA pretty well. So uh, uh, it's just when it starts going over to the, the global is where I get a little fuzzy because, you know, life is starting to happen. <laughs> yeah, totally understood. I'm the, I'm the same way. I mean, I, my my number one global memory was, you know, uh, Joe Pedicino. I met him in New York like the, about six months before that got off the ground. And he's talking about how he's got a $20 million line of credit, which was a lot of money back then. He's got a, a, a letter to prove it. And then, you know, he, he gets on ESPN. He's got all these big stars like Cactus Jack and uh, Terry Gordy, uh, Eddie Gilbert. And then I read in The Observer that they're not flying in talent anymore and like well this just is not going to work and it was yeah just the same same old uswa guys in front of a different banner yeah exactly right exactly and yeah i'd forgotten i was talking about how i was in there for steve austin's whole run i was in there for mick foley's whole first run when he first came in to world class i was there um seeing him do all these crazy things you know taking that doing that elbow drop off the uh, off the apron but I didn't think anything of it at the time I just thought yeah these guys you know they do these things and I, you know you didn't think about them hurting themselves till you got a little older and how much damage yep. they were doing but I was there for all of all of his stuff right there on the front row sportatorium and I you know I was very fortunate on these front row I knew people that I, I would buy tickets from you know people that worked at the arena uh, different you know they knew how to get the tickets i'd pay for them but you know i got front row at that texas stadium 86 and second row during that scaffold in 87 um and then i i got i just became friends with the ticket ladies at the sportatorium who would hold my ticket and i'd walk in and buy next week's ticket each week and you know have it <laughs> and uh for eight dollars and they were holding it because they wanted to know who they were sitting by and, uh, you know, they're not, not a stranger. They would know, you know, and they knew I was a nice kid and everything. I think everybody knows I'm a nice guy. They can see my Twitter account. I'm never negative on my Twitter and stuff. And I hope that everybody will look at my Twitter account and see that, you know, I was at a lot of these shows. All those pictures are mine, about 95%. I've collected a few collections through the years of really close friends, but most of the time they were sitting next to me at the show. So our pictures kind of match up and everything. Um, I've really got some fantastic one to Bruiser Brody I took at the Cotton Bowl in uh, in 86 where he came down the aisle I was on the aisle about the third or fourth row and he stops during a it stopped and turned around because Fritz and Abby were doing something in the ring with the cage and Fritz and I'm just right in Bruiser Brody's face taking these pictures I'm just really proud of those well, you know, and you know what I'm being sincere when I say this thank you for sharing that thank you for the contribution 
you're welcome. And a lot of people don't share because they, they consider they're so passionate about their pictures that they don't put them up. They're, that's their pictures, and they don't want to share. And I know a lot of people like that. And once in a while on some of those Facebook groups, I will ask, I'll say, I know that y'all keep these, you know, really close to your heart, but put something out from uh, the 84 Texas Stadium if you were there. And uh, this year we were lucky, a local announcer who's here in Dallas, he put a lot, he was ringside at Texas Stadium 84, and he put several pictures up. And I was like, ah, oh, that's fantastic, because we get so few new things. I mean, I've seen every Von Erich picture there could be out there, and we've seen everything. And so it's neat when somebody comes up with something new. I just want to say, maybe next down down the road, I would always like to talk about more Gino. I'd really like to talk about one of my favorites, and that's this uh, girl Sunshine that was such a such a figure in Dallas as far as this uh, woman scorned by Jimmy Garvin. And I think that they could do a Dark Side of the Ring episode on her. I always say that because there's there's a lot there, and she was very important in this area. And she gets no credit now, but it was amazing that we could hit home runs on Sunshine Precious and then Missy Hyatt in Dallas. Unbelievable that we hit those three home runs. And later, Baby Doll would have her thing. She was in Dallas, but she wasn't the home run that, that, that those other three were. No, she wasn't. She was she was still new to the game. Yeah. But um, one last thing I'll leave everybody with. If you want to see the greatest interview in pro wrestling history, uh, it, it's on the network when Sunshine does her press conference <laughs> after Jimmy Garvin dumps her. What a great acting performance she did. She was all over the place. She was mad. She was enraged. She was sad. Then she got angry again. It was it was fantastic. Lance, I, we'll have you back on again. I mean, I had such a good time. Thank you. Thank you, and you're exactly right. She was all over the place in that one. One of my favorites. You're, you've hit the nail on the head so many times today. I think we've agreed. Uh, this has just been uh, wonderful. Well, thank you very much. Thank you for coming on. I want to thank Arcadian Vanguard Network for allowing Stick to Wrestling on their uh, network of podcasts. I want to thank Lou Kippelman, our producer, who does great work putting this all together. And this has been a production of the Arcadian Vanguard Podcast Network. This concludes our podcast day.